God's Word in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his, that being Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down to them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. O Lord, we come to you because you are the one who must work. Salvation is from you. Lord, we need you to take the faltering lips, the unclear words, and your spirit to blow afresh in all of our hearts so that we might see and savor who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Kim Ung Yong is thought by many to be the smartest man alive. By age three, that's three years old, he could solve physics problems. It's a goal to aim for children. By age four, he could read Korean, German, Japanese, and English. At age eight, NASA had hired him to work for them. Prior generations had their prodigies as well. In the late 1800s, William James Sidus was born, and he read at 18 months. By two years old, he was reading the New York Times. By age seven, he had written four books and was fluent in eight languages. At age nine, he gave his first lecture at Harvard and entered at 11 only because they made him wait two more years. If you back up even further historically, you could look at someone you may know, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who began playing the piano by ear at age three, composed his own piece by age six, and wrote his own symphony by age eight. Now, these are child prodigies who during in their early years what adults hope they can do at full, mature adulthood. And these children responded in various ways to their greatness and what they were given. Now, so far we've gone through Luke. We've seen what people have said about Jesus. But now, for the first time, we're going to hear Jesus speak. And I want to pose the question, was he a child prodigy? Was he a child that was far beyond all other children? Did he accomplish feats that almost seemed impossible? I mean, as I read some of those things, you probably thought, there's no way 18 months could read. They could read four languages by age four. What? No way. And yet, it's been documented. Well, this morning, I want us to ask four questions. And as we ask these questions, I think we'll learn four amazing things about Jesus. If you have a bulletin, I believe it's on the back of it. First, we're going to ask, was he a rebellious child? 
then, was he really a real human? Is he a role model? Or is he the Redeemer? Well, let's first, this first question, was he a rebellious child? Let's imagine for a second, the Gospel of Luke was set as a play. If it was a play, the curtain would have just gone down, and the last scene would have been infant Jesus in the temple with Simeon giving praise to God that this child had come, and Anna rejoicing that the Redeemer was now here. And as the screen was down, the narrator would tell of how the child then went back to Bethlehem, and then eventually they went to Nazareth, and he tells about how they went every year as custom to Jerusalem for the Passover, and the curtain would rise, and you would see this big crowd on the stage growing, older people, younger people, animals, as they made this 80-mile journey that would take three or four days to get there, and you would show them showing up at the temple. And then, you know, on stage they switch all the props, see them showing what they do, and then they would start to go back. And it might have gone something like this. Mary is sitting there packing up all the bags after the week's celebrations. She's talking to the other females as they travel together with the children. She goes, yeah, Jesus, you know, he's almost 13. So he's going to be traveling with Joseph because when you're 13, as you all know, he's a man. So, yeah, I haven't seen him, but I know he's with Jesus, with Joseph. And boy, doesn't time fly? And how's he already 13 almost? I remember just the other day we were in Bethlehem with the angels and the shepherds. I can't believe it. And then on the stage, the spotlight goes on Joseph, and Joseph speaks to the other man, and he goes, oh, no, no, Jesus isn't with us. He's only 12. Next year is when he's with us. I'm sure Mary wants this last year to spend that one last trip with Jesus and him helping with the other kids, so no, Jesus isn't with us. And then as you see all of them, the women and children first, start to go off the stage, and then later the men slowly walk off stage back to Nazareth. You see Jesus on the side in a circle of people talking. Well, then the curtain goes down and comes back up and Mary's walking up to Joseph. How was the day? How was the walk? How was everything? Oh, good. How was it with you all? How was Je Jesus? I thought Jesus was with you. And then the panic starts to set in. Well, how that's real funny. Where is he? Well, I, I thought you had him. And then the panic begins to set in because, well, well, let's check. And they go around all around the camp and after a while, it's not like, hey, do you know Jesus? You're screaming, where is Jesus? And they're looking, and they don't know where he is. And you probably had stories. We could probably all go around and just tell a story of when you were left, or you left a child somewhere, and the panic, and the thoughts that go racing through your head. Well, in this time, it's estimated there were 60 million slaves. And often, children were kidnapped and sold into slavery. And age 12, a young boy... That's prime age. Here's someone who would be a worker for life. And you can imagine all the panic going through Joseph and Mary's mind. But what can they do? There's no street lights. There's no cars. They have to spend the night if they can sleep at all. So the next day, they have to make the trip back. And it was a full day's journey. So it's going to be a full day back. So they get back, and I'm sure they look some. But there's no street lights. It's dark. They got to go to sleep again. So the third day they go, and there they find Jesus. And Mary, of course, she comes to him as we read, and why did you do this to us? Well, what are you doing? And Jesus responds in a way that is shocking on many levels. On one, he says, well, why were you looking for me? Like, well, we're your parents. That's why we were looking for you. But then he goes on and tells them, didn't you know that I must be in my 
father's house. And I think it's important. You know, Jesus wasn't just playing with friends and then all of a sudden goes, oh, they're gone. <laughs> what do I do? I can't catch up. Jesus wasn't lost. This was intentional. He wasn't just in the temple. I don't know where else to go. I'm probably safe here because if I yelled, lots of people would hear. He intentionally stayed and he was intentionally with the teachers in the temple. And so he responds and he tells them that he must be in his father's house. Now, it's a little unclear, is it, that he has to be about his father's business or he has to be about in his father's house. It's a little unclear. We don't know. But the main point behind it, which is very clear, is he's saying, I have a father and that father is superior in priority to you. And I, Jesus is saying, have to be devoted to him. You know, Jesus' words here are an incredible declaration. He is saying, I am the son of God. Now think about this for a second. Christians throughout the ages, you know, we get to Christmas and we have the manger scenes. Oh, we love it. The son of God came as a baby. Oh, that's so, that's wonderful. Or then Jesus as an adult, healing, doing miracles, casting out demons, teaching. We love it. But the son of God is a 12-year-old boy? Like, we know 12-year-old boys. They smell. They do weird things. They're obnoxious. What? The Son of God was a 12-year-old boy? Yes, He was. And He's saying here, I'm not just any 12-year-old boy. I'm the Son of God. And this wasn't just like one time He said this. He says it throughout. One other example in his adult years, Luke 10, 22. Jesus says, all things have been handed to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father or who the father is except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Now, Jesus here is declaring, not just once, but throughout that he is the son of God. Now here, I think it's very important that Jesus is seen, and I think this is true, and I'll make an argument for it, as coming to realize, as he's 12 years old, that he's the Son of God. Not that in his omniscience, he knew from birth, oh, I'm God's Son. But that as he learned and as he grew, he came to see this. But beyond this important declaration that Jesus is saying that he's the Son of God, I think it's important to see that it's showing by his words that he's not rebellious. In fact, he's perfectly obeying his father, his father in heaven. I think we see him not being rebellious by what it says in verse 51. Look down at that verse again. It says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And I think Luke adds that specifically, one, to show Jesus' submission throughout all his life, but two, to show all of life Jesus obeyed his parents. This was not like the exception even here, he was faithful. And so Jesus is not rebellious at all. And notice we even see that by Mary's response. Mary didn't receive Jesus' words as some kind of sarcastic preteen retort. She didn't say, well, don't you get smart with me, young man. She didn't say anything like that. Instead, what, how did she respond? She pondered it. Oh, this means something. This is not my son being sassy with me. You see, Jesus wasn't rebuking his parents. Or accusing them. He was just informing, explaining. Well, this is what you should have realized. 
but they don't understand. But what we need to be clear is they don't see him as a rebel. Well, then this part of the story ends with a statement, which is actually an allusion, which we'll look at more, an allusion to Samuel, because these same words are said about him growing in favor and stature with God and man. But I wonder, has this story ever bothered you? You read it and you're kind of like, ooh, Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, you can't talk to your parents that way. Like, we've heard 12-year-olds talk to their parents that way, and we go, well, that's, I thought he was perfect. And I think if we didn't know that Jesus was God's son, and if it had not been revealed to Mary and Joseph through angelic visions and through the shepherds and through the magi, then this could have been rebellion. But it's not because they should have known. They'd been told time and time again through various means. So they should have known this child is no ordinary child. He doesn't have an ordinary mission. And yet we see here the first and only recorded words of Jesus from age zero to age 30. And they're very important because it's showing that he is aware as to who he is and why he came. You know, this was a very monumental time in the life of Jesus. In their culture at age 13 was when a male was considered to be responsible before God. And as they're getting ready for that, they would need to be taught and instructed. So Jesus here is age 12, and he's being taught, and he's being instructed. And the next year, he's going to be, in their culture, responsible before God. And he's learning something, though. Not just that he needs to be responsible to God, but that he is the Son of God, that he's been sent on a mission. And he has to be about his Father's business. He has to be in his Father's house. But before we get to that mission we have to pause and reflect on the fact, because this really raises the question, is Jesus a real human? And to consider that, I think we need to focus on where the last story ended and where this one also ends. Look at chapter 2, verse 40, and then we'll look at verse 52, because verse 40 has a very similar ending. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Or chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. And so, it's saying Jesus grew in wisdom, or we could say intellect. And we noted, as I began, child prodigies that came before. And I asked if Jesus was one. But I think if we look at this passage, it's showing that Jesus actually was not a child prodigy. If you lined him up with all the other 12-year-old boys in Nazareth, yeah, there's nothing special. He looks like all the other 12-year-old boys. Well, how can I say that? Well, because that's what we're told. Hold your finger there and turn over to Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 57. So hold your finger in Luke 2, but turn to Matthew chapter 13. And here, Jesus, he comes back to his hometown, and we're going to see, well, how do they respond when he comes? Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. 
And so here, Jesus comes home, so to speak, and when he starts to do this, these things, they don't go, well, this isn't surprising. Don't you remember when he was speaking in multiple languages at age 10? Don't you remember in the dirt when he drew the whole Hebrew paradigm at age 4? I mean, don't you remember when he was teaching everyone in the synagogue at age 13? I mean, we expected this. Not at all. They're like, well, where did he get all this? We saw him grow up. He was just like all the other little Nazareth boys who became men. There was nothing about him that was prodigy from a human standpoint. His life was so ordinary up to age 30 that those who knew him thought, He's just like everyone else. Now, in the Gospels, we see through Jesus both his divine elements, because he's God, and also his human elements. So at times, Jesus will interact with the Pharisees or people who are trying to trick him. And he'll say things that because it says he knew their heart. Well, that's omniscience. That's divine. But then other times, he's growing and learning. And sometimes we see these things real close together. Like once the disciples go with Jesus in a boat by sea at night and they're traveling and a storm comes up. But where's Jesus? Well, he's sleeping. Well, why is he sleeping? Well, because he has a real body that gets tired and that body needs rest. But then they wake him up and he speaks in omnipotence and the storm stops. So in one story, we see both wed together. Human needing rest wakes up in omnipotence, storm is over. And yet, most of the time, I think we should realize that Jesus was not using these divine prerogatives, but he gave them up. And we see that here because it says he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor. You know, growth implies progress. But God never progresses. For God to progress means that he was not better before. So for Jesus to progress means there was times when he didn't know everything, when he wasn't fully mature in his intellect, in his physical body, in his relationships. You know, like every other child, Jesus had to learn. He had to learn his colors. He had to learn his letters. He had to learn his sounds. Mary had to say to him, okay, yes, that's Olaf and then Bait. And the bait, you know, here we use the buh sound. And here's the buh. No, Jesus, we did this yesterday. It's not the buh sound there. That's when you have this. It's the buh sound. Okay, okay. And then the next day, she'd have to, oh, no, 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 that's not the color yellow. Remember, that's, that's green. And Jesus had to learn all these things. Those weren't moral issues. He was growing in wisdom or in intellect. Even when he's in the temple, he wasn't teaching them. They were teaching him. But not only did Jesus have to grow mentally, he also had to grow physically, or as it says here, in stature. So he's 12 years old. So he either is or is soon going to go through puberty. His voice would have cracked. His body would start sweating more. Acne would soon burst onto the scene if it was not there in full force. You know, his muscles had to grow so he could go into the force with Joseph and chop down the wood so they could do their carpentry. His hands had to develop calluses so when he swung the axe, they wouldn't blister up. Joseph probably gave him scraps of wood and said, hey, work with the tools on this. We're not going to use that word we just chopped. That took too much time. Learn how to use the tools on this scrap wood. He didn't all of a sudden come out and just make master carpentry. He had to grow physically in stature. And that's when he's an adult. We can read of when he became hungry. 
He became thirsty. He was tired. He had a real physical body that had to grow. But not just mentally and physically, he also grew in favor with God and man. Now, for some of you, that well, how could he grow in favor with God? That doesn't make sense. He was always at a perfect relationship with God. Well, many of you have had the delight of a wonderful marriage. And the day you get married, you see them and you think, could I ever love someone more? And then you've been married 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or some of us almost 50 years. And you talk to your spouse and you go, you know, the day we got married, I didn't think I could love you anymore. But now I feel like I barely loved you on our wedding day. My love for you has deepened and grown so much. I feel like I love you way more than I did on our wedding day. In the same way, it's not that the Father and the Son didn't have favor with one another, but as Jesus grew in his humanity, that love between them deepened. It grew so that Jesus as a 12-year-old could then come as a 30-year-old and say, oh, my love for the Father is more. It's deepened as I've learned all that has happened, all that he's done. And so here, all these things are true. Now, if you're going, wow, that's really hard then that's what you're getting it. It's the incarnation. It's God becoming man. It shouldn't be. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. It's a mystery. How could the God of the universe take on flesh? And how could he grow? Well, I can't explain it all. But we see here pictures of what it must have looked like in some level. But and I think what I want to show is that, look, in this one snapshot, I mean, infancy to 30, this is all we get. It's wanting to show us that Jesus is a normal, ordinary human. He wasn't a prodigy. He didn't have all these gifts and talents. Then the rest of us go, well, of course, that's Jesus. I mean, if I had all that brain power and I had omnipotent power, well, I could have done all that. Yeah, that would have been easy. No, all the physical, mental, relational struggles we have, he had. He was an ordinary person. So it's striking here in the temple is not that he tapped into his divine omnipotence and is teaching the teachers of the law, but that as he grew, that wow, that's insightful for a 12-year-old. How did he come up with that question? He grew to get to that point. And noting that Jesus had a real body has been important throughout the life of the church and is still important today. We have a view about Jesus arose really early in the church, and it was called docetism. It comes from the Greek word Dokeo, which means to think, or sorry, to seem or to appear like. And these people said, well, look, Jesus just seemed to, or he appeared to have a body, but he didn't really have a real physical body because we know, they would argue, that physicality is sinful. The material world is bad, but the spiritual world is good. So Jesus, of course, had a spiritual body and he died spiritually, but he didn't have a physical body. And yet that's a denial of what we're told. The Son of God had real flesh and bones. He had a real spirit. And this false idea even comes out today. Sometimes Christians will think, well, look, all we need to do is evangelize people. That's All that matters is where they stand spiritually. Well, no. We should care about people, body and soul. Is their soul important? Should we evangelize and in love for them? Should we care about that? Yes. But we should never deny the importance of them physically. Or sometimes Christians will think, 
Well, you know, I have these burdens about my business or my health, but I can't pray about that. You know, that's not spiritual. Well, that's a lie. That's denying that God cares about us, body and soul. Jesus came body and soul because God cares about all, and he had to enter in. Well, why did he have to enter in? Was it so he could be, the third point, a role model? Well, I think on one level, the answer is yes. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him and Jesus ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. When Paul was looking at the Old Testament stories in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, now these things took place as an example for us. Now we're going to see in a few minutes, Jesus is way more than a role model. But he's not less than that. Let's look at just two ways Jesus is a role model. First, Jesus' desire to learn and to know God is an example for us. You know, consider again that Jesus is 12 years old. Now for me, reading about people in prior centuries helps reshape what is normal. What should we expect? And the norm, sadly for today, is that deep truths, thoughts about God, well, those are good for adults, but really for children moving on. We, we need to give them lighter stuff. Sadly, there's even churches today that all the way up through high school, they have something separate than the main service. Well, that's going to be too boring. We don't want to have them in here. We need to give them something that engages them. And yet here we see Jesus at age 12. He's the one seeking out the teachers. He's the one who says, I love God. And because I love him, I want to be with the adults. I want to engage with them. I'm sure he was a 12-year-old boy. Was the trip from Nazareth and back fun? I bet it was. But rather than wanting to do that, he wanted to be with and learn from those who know God and thought about him deeply. I'm always troubled when people say to me, you know, no one in this church has anything in common with me. You know, every weekend starting yesterday over the next few, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people sitting next to strangers and they have nothing in common with them except for their love for watching men in helmets and tights chase a piece of pig on a painted rectangle. And... They won't care one bit if the person next to them is a Republican or a Democrat. They're white or black. If they are rich or poor, where they eat, what they do with the environment. Because if that team with the right color uniform scores, they're going to give them a high five. And they're going to cheer together and they're going to shout and sing the fight song together. Why? Because of their primary love makes all the secondary things seem, eh, who cares? What is your primary love if you can look at a body of believers and go, I don't have anything in common with these people? Shouldn't our primary love for the Lord say, you know what? I don't think I'd ever do the activities they do, but they love Jesus and I love Jesus, so that doesn't matter. I love the same thing they do. So all these secondary things are of no consequence to me. You know, sure, we can realize that all of us in here are not going to be best friends outside of church. But even outside of church, don't we have the greatest thing in our life in common? 
And that can be what stirs our conversation, can stir our time of enjoyment together. And I think reflecting on this should cause us to desire not to lower the bar for our children. Or, if you're a preteen or a teenager, don't allow the bar to be lowered for you. Now let's just be honest. Video games, electronics, all those things, they are way more enjoyable in the short term than picking up your Bible and reading, than having a discussion with an adult, than coming and praying. They're, they're way more enjoyable. But in the short term, eating candy is way more enjoyable. Almost always, I would rather eat another Snickers than eat another piece of broccoli. But in the long term, just eating the Snickers is going to make your stomach hurt and eventually make your body have all kinds of problems. Well, the same thing's true spiritually. In the moment, it will not always be more enjoyable to read the book, to pick up your Bible, to pray, to meditate. But in the long term, the joy that it will bring is so much greater than what the other opportunities are. And Neil Postman wrote a really prophetic book in the 1980s entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. You know, there's nothing wrong with amusements in the right place. They're like candy. They're great. They add to life. They're enjoyable. But when we make all of life about entertainment, about fun, about short-term satisfaction, then we're amusing ourselves to death, spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every way. Well, you might be thinking, well, how can I do this? How can I engage in these things? Well, talk to your parents. Talk about the sermon. Or parents, talk to your kids about the sermon. What did the pastor say? And you may say, I don't know. And they, I don't know either. Well, okay. Well, let's ask someone else. Maybe someone understood what he said. We'll talk. Explain. Or pick up a good book and read them. And we have a whole bookshelf. Good books. Read a book with your parents. Read a book with a friend. Read the Bible with your parents. Or come to the men's discussion or women's discussion. Come on Wednesday night. There should be nothing weird with 12-year-olds praying with the adults. The only reason that's weird is because our culture has set what's normal for us. Now, adults, if this is true for 12-year-olds, how much more for us? You know, do you delight to get together with people and talk about God and His ways? If when you're together with people, they bring up theology, they bring up God, no, I don't really want to talk about that. Can we talk about something else? Or do you delight? Do you try and get together with others? Go, hey, let's read the Bible together. Or let's encourage one another. Or let's get together and read this book about God. And so, I think Jesus is setting an example. One last word on this and then we'll move on. I think some people will go, but my, ki I, my kids will never want to do that. That's ridiculous. Okay, they probably won't. I've never met a kid, there are probably a few, but not many who go, hey, can we have broccoli tonight? Hey, can we have vegetables? A loving parent doesn't wait till their parents, till their children want the good thing for them. The loving parent says, this is good for you. And graciously, and yes, there is some age appropriateness, I'm not denying that, says we are going to do this cheerfully. Now, this is not Mr. Darling and Peter Pan. Here, take this medicine, kids, but I'm not going to take it myself. 
No, we should be engaged with them. This is good. Let's do this together. Well, second, moving on. Jesus is an example in his submission to his parents. Remember again, this is when Jesus is 12, just before he is 13, a teenager. Now, teens, preteens, I know parents can be overbearing. Parents can have rules that don't make any sense at all. And in those moments, it's very tempting to think, you know, I, re- I don't really need to obey because they, they just don't get it. They don't understand, and I actually know what's best for me. Well, no one throughout all of time could have said that more than Jesus. And yet he fully submitted to his parents. You know, Jesus created his parents, and yet he obeyed them. Jesus obeyed his Father in heaven by submitting to his Father and Mother on earth. Mark Twain once said, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. You know, parental stupidity, which I have a lot of, is no legitimate excuse for disobedience. In fact, the way to honor God is to honor those over you. And this is not just to the children. Adults, the stupidity of your boss, of a city ordinance, of a rule over you, it's not okay to break it because it's dumb. Unless they're calling you to break God's law, just like Jesus, we should be in submission to those in authority over us. One quick thing I also think we should notice, notice that obeying and submitting to someone does not mean they're of more value than you. We're fed this lie in our culture that the only way you can be equal in personhood is if everyone has equality of position. Well, it's not true. Jesus submitted to his parents, not because they were of more value. Jesus was infinitely more valuable than they were and are. He submitted because it was his place and not because he was of less of a person. But is really all the application we're to draw from this story of raising the educational bar? Is all the application of, well, obey those in authority? Well, not at all. And we see that by the allusion I noted to earlier from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. You know, that is showing us that Jesus came to be way more than a role model. And if he's way more than that, then what is he? Was he the redeemer? And that's what we will turn to last. Because yes, we see through the allusion to Samuel that Jesus came to be the Redeemer. Well, who is Samuel? Well, Samuel was born in the Old Testament before the kings, and he came to Hannah and Elkanah. And Hannah had wanted to have children for years, and she was barren, and she cried tears in the temple and prayed that God would give her a child. And she said, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate it to the Lord. And God heard her prayer. And she had a child, and it was Samuel. So after a couple years, after she'd weaned Samuel, she took him to the temple and gave him to the Lord. But at this time, the nation of Israel, God's people, was, were straying from God. And they were rebelling. And this was specifically seen through Eli. He was the head priest through his sons. They would steal what was given for God. They spiritually manipulated the women so they could be intimate with them. 
And then right after it gives all these indictments about them, and that Eli only rebuked them but did nothing more, it then says in 1 Samuel 2.26, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. So there was corruption in Israel. There was abuse. There was scandal. And what does God do? He raises up one who will reform and restore the nation, Samuel. So Samuel grew up and he restored the purity of the priesthood. He called men and women back to obedience to God. He valued the approval of God more than men and the nation was restored. And now Luke uses the same language to say that one, like Samuel, has come. Except he's wanting to say that it's actually more than Samuel because Jesus is way more than a restorer. You see, Samuel could only restore the nation. He could never get to their root problem. He couldn't root it out. Jesus came not only to restore, but to redeem, to buy it back. And sadly, many people, they think of Jesus as only a restorer, but not a redeemer. Yes, Jesus is a good role model. He's an example, but he's not the redeemer, they would say. You may be familiar that in 2003, a book came out. It was immensely popular. It sold eventually more than 80 million copies. Three years later, they made a movie out of it. In the first weekend, it made $224 million. And the book was The Da Vinci Code. And in the book, the author on the first page says, these ideas are rooted in historical fact. Well, he later, because it's pretty clear they weren't historical fact, had to back off some, but he kind of left that out there. But the book's premise, one of the main premises, is that Jesus was just a man. And that he eventually got married and had children. And at one point, one of the main characters says to a woman, he says, Sophie, the only thing that matters is what you believe. History shows us that Jesus was an extraordinary man, a human inspiration. That's it. That's all the evidence has ever proved. And that's where a lot of people are in our culture. They'll say, Jesus as a role model, definitely, yes, wonderful. Jesus as a restorer of the way things should be, sure, yeah, that's what he aimed for. Jesus as the Son of God who came to redeem the world? No, I, I don't want to believe that. Yet, Jesus by saying he must be in his father's house, is saying that he's more than just a mere man. He's saying he is God. No Jew at that time would have said, this is my father's house. That would be blasphemous. This is the temple. And yet Jesus, because he's God, said, this is my father's house. Now remember, why did Jesus and his family come to the temple? What was happening Remember, they came to the temple to celebrate the Passover when God delivered them in Egypt by having the lamb be sacrificed and the blood spread over the doorposts of their house so that the, when the angel of God came, they wouldn't be punished. And Jesus is in Jerusalem at 12 years old. And Joseph comes back from the temple and he brings the lamb. And is Jesus making connections? And is Jesus beginning to ask a lot of questions as he does to the teachers of the law and his as he saw Joseph bring back the lamb, and then as he interacting, is he thinking about, well, what about Abraham and Isaac when the lamb allowed Isaac to go free? Or what about the Day of Atonement when the lamb 
this one was sacrificed, but this one went free. And well, ooh, what about all those promises in Isaiah of the Messiah who had come? But then in other parts of Isaiah, it says, God will come. And then the pinnacle of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that the Messiah will be killed for the sins of the people. And I'm almost 13, and I, I'm going to have to stand before God. And what am I here to do? Ooh, what about ooh, all those stories my parents told me about these magi who came, and there was these shepherds, and some angels came and sang, and then they told me what Simeon said, and they don't really know what it means, but, and is Jesus, for the first time at age 12, going, that's me. I'm the Passover lamb. Well, I don't know. But I, why is this the only story we're given between age 0 and 30? I think it's because here we're seeing that Jesus is going, I am the Redeemer. I came not just to be an example. I came to be that lamb that would buy back all the sins of these people so they could be restored to God. You see, Samuel, Luke alludes to him, Samuel could only restore because Samuel needed to be redeemed himself. But Jesus didn't need to be redeemed. He never sinned. He was the perfect man and he was God's son. And since he was perfect man and God, he could be the mediator between us and God. He could be the sacrificial lamb to redeem us for our sins. You see, Samuel could only offer sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice. And so, as we read earlier, wonderful passage in Hebrews 4, he can be sympathetic with us because he was tempted in every way as we are. He was a real man, yet without sin. Thus, we can come boldly to God in prayer with our sins, not thinking that he's wagging his head going, how could they do that again? Not wagging his finger going, I told you all not to do that. But in sympathy going, I was once 12, I understand. I was once 18, I understand. I was once 30, I understand. I was betrayed by my friends, I understand. I had to leave my mom alone, I understand. And so, here we see that Jesus is way more than a restorer. He is a redeemer. And yet I think many people think of Jesus only as a restorer because they don't understand the depth of their sin. They think of their sin the way Sarah and I first thought of restoring our bathroom. When we bought our house, we knew that part of the bathroom floor, besides being really ugly, was a little soft, so we would need to get it up. So you all may remember Jacob Cop. One night we got to work. It's going to be real simple. We'll just rip the floor out, go buy the products, put the new floor back down. No big deal. Easy project. So we start ripping the floor out. Ooh, that's kind of wet. Huh. Why is the floor wet? That's not good. Well, maybe we should go into the house and give this an inspection. And Jacob, being the braver man than I, went under for me. That was very kind. So he went under and comes back with a picture on his phone. And, oh, ooh, your uh, foundation beam is, like, completely rotted and cracked all the way through. Well, at that point, we could have gotten, well, you know what? No one knows. Let's just put a new floor on. And that's how many people deal with their sin. They think, my, my sin's just a surface-level problem. What we can do is I can take these bad actions out, the old dirty floor, we'll replace that, and then I'll put a new floor in. Hey, Jesus, he's a good example of what that floor should look like. I'll put that floor down. 
And yet our sin is more what the real problem is, that what needs to happen is you need to gut the whole thing, which we did. You've got to rip everything out and start new. You've got to put new foundation from the ground up. And that's what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to give you an example. He came to say, I'm redeeming you. I'm buying your whole life because you need a brand new life. All the way down to the foundation up. I've got to be that life for you. And so this passage, like all scripture, is calling and say, look, do you see who you really are? Do you see the depth of your sin? You know, there's no amount of efforts. You, know, you can keep replacing the floor every few years. It's no good. You got to be getting more than restoration. You need redemption. And yet, what do Mary and Joseph say? Well, they still don't understand. They're a, lot like, they're a lot like us. Wow, look at all these stories. I don't get it. And if you don't understand, talk to us. Please, talk to me. We got two keys today. Talk to either of them. Well, what does this mean? What do you mean I got to be redeemed? And yet, Jesus is saying, look, I didn't just come to be a good man. I didn't just come to be a restorer. I came to buy your life for you. And we're going to end singing a song. It's beautiful. It encapsulates, much shorter than I can, what happens. It says, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. Four simple lines. But it shares the whole beautiful story. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for these snapshots. These snapshots of the Redeemer. Lord, may we not just trivialize our sin or trivialize what your Son came to do, but may we see the depth and the wonder of who he is and what he did for us. In your son's name we pray.